Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. You got to own that. So having a righteous person around can become a horrible thing. And we should feel sorry for blind people living in this state. We become their conviction and we don't have to say a thing. There's a story about Billy Graham goes golfing with the president and a couple corporate business owners and they get done. And one of the business owners is complaining and just, I just, somebody asked him, well, how was golfing with, you know, the Billy Graham and the president? He's just like, I just can't stand that Billy Graham just constantly being told about stuff. And I don't want to talk about my sin. I don't want to talk about God. I just want to golf. I'm just not interested in any of that. And they go up to Billy Graham afterwards and say, Billy Graham, like, what did you guys talk about on the golf course? And he goes, I don't know. We didn't really talk about anything. In fact, I just kept my mouth shut. The president was there. Like, I just listened the whole time. Just being in the space with unbelievers causes them to react. And it's not us they're reacting to. It's that we're seeking God. We're doing all these other meekness, holiness, righteousness, purity. We're trying to do all these things in our life and we've built up to that and people can actually see us differently than they used to see us. That's one of those holy rollers. So they start to mock us. They start to pick on us. I think with verse 10, there isn't necessarily... In verse 11, what's different between 11 and 10 is verse 11 has the word revile. There's a hatred that goes in verse 11. You see that? In verse 10, there's no hatred. I think people can actually convince themselves that they love you when they come at you and persecute you because you're being a holy roller or you're trying to live according to what the word says. So, uh, for instance, when we first started telling people, no, we can't do that because our Sundays are sacred to the kingdom, man, that messes people up. Because when you live that way, it doesn't excuse them living their way. So when we say, no, nah, we're just shutting off the TV on Sundays, like back then for us, that was the big move as we were shutting off the TV just on Sundays. Now we're like, shut it off the whole week. Um, but, we, but that idea of like, no, we're not going to go to that event because we got church. And w- what kind of church goes for three hours? The kind of church where people actually fellowship with each other? That's the kind of church that we go to? Well, what kind of weird church is that? What kind of cult are you in? It's not a cult. It's just what the Bible says to do. You're going to a church that's not biblical. Well, who are you to say we're not being biblical? Okay, this is persecution. And these things are things that God says we're blessed when this happens because we're actually growing in our faith. And then that concern becomes a little more than just rolling eyes or even worse, like in the workplace, it's the full-on exclusion. People walk one way when they see you coming the other. Or they cross the street when you're crossing on this side. There's full-on just, I don't want to be around those people. But there isn't a revilement there yet. I still like the idea when we first started telling people about how long our church went. Like my own, like my own family would be like, what kind of church goes for three, four hours? It's all oh, that's nothing. Uh, most people stay there all day. It's cute until you drop the idle activities that other people love and you choose God's calling. No, I'm not going to go to those kinds of movies anymore. Why not? What's the big deal? I just don't want to put that stuff in my head. Oh, you're getting old. You're, you're, that's just ridiculous. No, it's not ridiculous. I don't want garbage in my head, and I'm going to choose to live that way, and I'm at peace with that. In fact, you should, you know, 
If you want me to tell you how, let me know. Um, but that idea of don't you think that's too extreme becomes what it is. Matthew 6.24, next chapter, says no one can serve two masters. You're either going to hate one or love the other or you'll be loyal to one and despise the other and you can't serve both God and mammon. Can't do it. And too many Christians try to do both. They try to please all the people in their life, their job, their family, every, all these traditions they had, the job security. They try to make their retirement plans, but you can't serve those things. You can have a retirement plan, but you can't serve it. I can't quit right now, even though I know God wants me to, because that's going to ruin my retirement. Like, just talk to anybody over 60 and you'll hear that dialogue. They're not serving God then. They're serving their retirement. Let's just admit it and call it what it is. Let's have a purity of heart. Let's just name what that is. It's okay to love God, but you can't trust him with things like job security, family traditions, all that stuff the world throws at you, retirement plans. But yeah, just you can be a God person, but don't like dump your retirement for the sake of the kingdom. Why not? God is my retirement. He's coming back tomorrow. You can't live like that. Yes, I can. God says I'm not going to starve, so I, I haven't yet. I haven't missed a meal. Look at me. You know, in short, we can't serve those things. We serve God first. And people just can't handle that. So in the name of caring and concern and love, they may even have an intervention for people that choose to live according to God's plan. Um, but if that happens, if we get used to that happening, then they get frustrated with you. Verse 11, blessed are you. Remember, there's blessings here. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Man, now you're up there with the prophets. All of this is foundational on being humble, being meek, being seeking righteousness, seeking mercy, seeking peace. All of you can't get to this point without those things because Satan will use you and chew you up for breakfast. You're not ready for persecution because you can't handle it. Because all you're thinking about is earthly pain and earthly things. When God's kingdom does what they're supposed to do, the world's kingdom reacts. There is warfare going on. But the world doesn't care about weak soldiers that are hiding at home on their couch. The world cares about soldiers that are out there sharing the gospel boldly and they could care less about that persecution in verse 10. So when that happens, the world reacts and they react strongly. And there's a deep hatred that's there. And I'm speaking from experience. 1 Peter 4.15, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer. Don't suffer for bad, sinful things or as a busybody in other man's matters. I like that murderer in, in 1 Peter is up there with being a gossip. I'm just, just saying. Verse 16 in 1 Peter 4, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God on his behalf. Okay, you want to fire me? Fire me. Praise the Lord, I'm going to serve the God. As long as when you're getting persecuted, you're not getting persecuted for the slander, you're, getting, you're making people understand that you've done nothing and you serve an almighty God. And I think God can use that to change nations when that happens. He has historically. I know my wife doesn't like the idea of torture. To be persecuted doesn't always mean torture. It can just mean you get fired. So you get fired from your job. Is that the end of the world or can you trust that the church will take care of you? 
you got a battle plan? Do you got a plan B? Do you have people around you that will help feed and take care of you? And the answer should be, yeah, I do, because I'm in fellowship. In verse 11, the word when is in there. Blessed are you when this happens. It's not an if, it's a when. It's promised. <laughs> That's a paradox to say that you're blessed when you get this sort of thing happen. Um, but this is the kind of thing where we just stack up the Lord's blessing and grace and mercy as he continues to give it to us. This is not for other places. Um, and I think Satan does that with us, that this kind of persecution only happens over there. When someone hates you and takes action against you, that happens right here in America, right now, it has for a very long time. You know, and coming out of academia, they have purged Christians from academia, like actively. That's persecution with revilement, right? They're not physically hitting me, but they're going after my livelihood and my life and my family when they do that. And they're doing it to Christians all over America. This is not all over in other places of the world. It's happening right here. Um, that idea of, test this if you want to. And I think for believers, like if you're there and you've done the other parts of this kind of life of Christ that Jesus has laid out, just take your lunch to work. And then when you get to Bible study, open your Bible and start talking about what you're reading. It's only a matter of days before people start to hate you for doing that. And it's an amazing thing. Um, if it's religious people, and I'm not talking about Christ people, I'm talking about religious people. If it's religious people, it might take more than a few days. It might take a year, but they will eventually hate you for doing that because you're going to get to some topic they disagree with you in. If there's an office party, skip it. Say, no, I'm going to go hang out with my church friends. What, wait to see how your boss reacts to that. Eventually, you're the worker that doesn't, you're not loyal to the company. No, I'm not. I'm loyal to the Lord God Almighty. And if my service isn't good enough, don't keep me here. I'll serve as long as you want me to. Uh, introduce yourself to every person you meet, making sure that they know you're in love with Jesus Christ. I started doing this like a few years ago because I just wanted to make sure if anything went raw, they just knew that I had a heart for Jesus, right? And that they could approach me and we could work it out. Uh, but that doesn't always, the world doesn't react to that very well at all. Um, Jesus experiences everything that he's asking us to go through. And I think that's an assurance. Um, he says those who hunger and feed for thirst for righteousness, back in chapter four, he hungered in the wilderness, but then he's going to feed thousands of people. He thirsts, but he offers the Samaritan woman water. He suffers the wicked, and then he offers us great rewards. There's nothing God's asked us to do that he hasn't gone through himself. And if he went through that for us, all kinds of evil in this verse, to find fault in someone for not doing this is, I think, a satanic spirit. Um, when we suffer, we need to not hate the people doing it to us. We need to feel sorry for them because they're blind and they're not getting the blessings we get in our life. They don't have a fellowship to hang out with every week. They don't have the word of God that just speaks right to their heart every week. They don't have the breaking of bread with people they can trust. and They've got to put on a show for everybody they meet. Think of how exhausting that is. I, for me, I just remember when I lived that way. Right? You've got to be somebody different with everybody you know and remember what you said to everybody. You've got to put on a show because you're trying to impress. How exhausting. And we can't hate people for that. But when they run into a righteous person that blows their mind like the Beatitudes would be doing to the audience, we can't be mad when we suffer all kinds of evil for that because we do it for God and for righteousness' sake. They do it, and I think sometimes with people there's even a satanic spirit where they attack us and they don't even know why. And they get done and they're just like, I don't know what happened. I don't know why I said that or did that. And we're like, I do. 
I have eyes. I have. I can see clearly, and I'm, I'm not looking through a, a. My glass has been rubbed off a little bit. I can see what exactly what's happening. The enemy's using you. The way of the wicked is like darkness. Proverbs nine four nineteen. They don't know what makes them stumble. They don't even have a clue. Luke twenty three thirty four. Then Jesus said, "Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing." And they divided his garments and cast lots. When when. Yeah, I'm going to break this down even more. This is such a big thing, I think. we got a lot of mature Christians here. There's two primary accusations that get made of Christians, and, and, and I think it's important for our own hearts. None of this is new, right? It says they revile and persecute you, right? So that's two different things. They say evil against you. Oh, now the sun's getting me over here. Two accusations made of Christians, and, and I think that if we know these accusations, we're armed against them because we can have clarity. Um, to revile someone is to be intolerant of them, to not want them around. So it's the refusal to approve some behaviors as moral. There's an intolerance to it. Um, so if others are feeling guilty because we're in the room, and this is back in verse 10 too, there's this idea that why does it make other people feel guilty? Why are they so intolerant of Christians? Why do they hate us? And I, for me, that's a curious question. I'm going to just going to go into the first century. Uh, Pliny the Younger was a Roman governor of Bithynia. And in, he's writing in 111 and 113. And he expresses in his writings the frustration over the fact that Christians would not invoke the gods. And he writes a letter to Emperor Trajan and he laments the stubbornness and unyielding obstinacy of these Christians. Like, this isn't new. This is first century, right? And you got governors of the land writing letters to the, the, the Caesar saying, I hate these Christians. They won't bend. And what are they not doing? They're not invoking the gods, which means they're not buying the little statues. Down at the, they're not participating. They didn't go out for Black Friday. Like, they skipped what the world's events are. They're just not going to them. But that means the world's events aren't as profitable anymore. When Christians live a Christian life, we cost people money. When we all follow like lemmings what the world wants us to do, the people are making money off that. So when you get whole groups of people saying, yeah, no thanks, I don't want that. What do you mean you don't want that? You stubborn, obstinate people. So it's not that we're unholy, but that hatred, I think, comes through. It's not that we're, we're stubborn with the world, but it's not. It's that we're totally soft to God and his ways. And that separation for us totally changes the game. Um, Pliny then, by the way, the end of the story is Pliny just started killing the Christians. But it's kind of interesting. <laughs> the, he made a distinction, and this is really curious, between Christians and real Christians. Most of the Christians, if you kill them, they just, or you persecute them, they give in. They bend. But the real Christians, I am in for quote, I am informed that the people who are really Christians cannot possibly be made to do any of these things. Pliny just came to understand there are some Christians you can't change them. They're a rock and they're resolute. And I just think that's amazing. It goes on to note that, that he even admits they don't actually commit crimes. It's that they just they cannot change. So Pliny calls the Christians intolerant when this is Satan twisting it around. The truth is Pliny just became intolerant of Christians. It goes the other way, exactly the other way. And when we're intolerant of our own sin, 
people assume we're intolerant of them. And it's an amazing phenomena. Second thing that's here is persecution. Persecution isn't of the heart. It's what they actually do to accuse believers, or it's when they do something to believers to try to coach them in a different way. They're trying to address that. Um, it, the Roman Empire, early Roman Empire, called Christians the haters of men. This is a fascinating little situation. They didn't align with what the Roman world thought was good, so therefore they hated the Roman world. And famously, Nero was the first one to use this. Nero's kind of known because he killed Christians, and he had huge sex parties, right? But it, was, it wasn't that the Christians were out telling Nero all the wrong stuff he was doing. It's that I think he knew it was wrong. The guy went crazy. He knew what he was doing was wrong, and here's these Christians that won't accept it. And it bothers people living in sin when their sin isn't accepted by a group of people. They want, if everybody accepts it, it makes it okay. And they, they believe that lie so much that when they go around and uh, there's this group of people over here who won't accept their sin, they start to hate that group of people. And, the, and then I think, again, the lie is, if I can only get rid of those people, then my sin will be okay. I'll get rid of this guilt that I feel. And the reality is they're never going to get rid of that guilt. They can kill every Christian on earth and new ones will just be inspired and pop up. Like God's will will be done. You can kill the worker, but you can't stop the work. So Nero famously killed Christians, not out of civic duty, but fully releasing his hatred on these people. Mockery, I quote, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. He didn't just kill them. He killed them in full mockery of Christianity. This is Nero, second century. Covered with the skin of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to their crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight expired. They used Christians as street lamps. This isn't new. We live it really easy right now, and we think we're getting persecuted. There's nothing. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle as, an exhibit, as exhibiting a show in a circus. This is written by Roman historians. It's a confounding hatred. If we don't agree with you, you hate us. We don't love what you're doing, so you hate us. Again, it's Satan just turning it all around. They think we're hating just by living a peaceful, righteous life. And then what they do is they actually act on their hatred. And Satan loves this. If you don't worship our ideas, then we're justified in every evil we can think of to do to you. What's ironic about Nero is that years later, the emperor converts to Christianity. Like the whole Roman Empire turns into a bunch of art-making Italians, right? Christianity absolutely devastates or takes the Roman Empire heart by heart and just transforms it. Tacitus acknowledged that Christians weren't really guilty of anything that they did. And in fact, when Tacitus wrote the history about Nero that I just quoted, he admits that they were killed not for their deeds, but for their hatred against mankind. And that's where we get that from. Christians didn't do anything wrong. They lived a lawful life under the Roman Empire. They just were hated. I say all that not to depress us. In fact, we're going to get to the next few verses because I don't think Jesus wanted to improve. Like, he didn't want to leave us on that note either, right? There's a salt and light thing coming up. Satan uses a touch of the truth to take fallen humanity and make them his empire. So 
when we see early Christians getting persecuted, this isn't some backwater democracy in North America. This is the Roman Empire, far more significant than the American Empire. They existed for 800 years. We've only been around for like 250. Nothing. This is the mighty Roman Empire. Christians absolutely took the Pax Romana and turned it into Pax Italia. Like that transition is something we should take hope in. Blessed are we when we're persecuted because that's when God's really going to move and change hearts. So when that happens, God builds his church. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. When Christians are sold out believers and they are stubborn to the world and we don't bend on things like purity and we take whatever punishment they got coming for us, people's hearts change in massive amounts, not just one by one, but whole crowds of people get converted. Verse 12 says, Rejoice, and on this one we get an additional piece, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Luke adds the phrase, Leap for joy. Like when this happens, we should laugh. Like God's using us. This is amazing. We should come to church and tell each other about it. Look at what just happened. So that exceedingly glad matches the strong language used throughout the Beatitudes. We rejoy ourselves because we suffer from it. Rejoice is to put joy on again. The gladness then comes from beyond a physical experience. It comes from a, a spiritual one. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we eventually get to see it, but it's not here on this earth. But when we are facing our own injustice, slandered against, all that sort of thing, um, we actually become part of that new world that God's trying to make. And what an honor to do that. Ten of the twelve disciples actually die of martyrdom to death. So there's your odds, right? I'll do God. You do whatever you think you have to do with the weight and pull and strength of this planet. You do whatever you need to do to me. I'm just going to do God. And that's my business. I choose God. I don't choose the earth. So throw me your worst and we'll get it. Come, we'll, we'll take whatever we got coming to us. Uh, this is Martin Luther. Yeah, I'm going Lutheran for a second here. At the Diet of Worms is a famous quote from him. The church, not the world, the church that has become the world tells Luther not to do what he's doing by teaching people the Bible. And he goes to the Catholic church and he's facing death and persecution from people who call themselves Christians. And it says... Unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I don't accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted one another. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I like how he uses the word cannot after the Pliny quote, like these real Christians, they can't do it. Like I'm just going to recognize they can't do it any different. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So help me God. Amen. Man, this is what started an entire denomination. Is a single person saying, no, I'm not going to do it. And when we face that persecution, it is not from the bad, evil people in leather coats at the biker bar. We face that persecution from people in the church. We face that persecution from people in our families. We face that persecution from people at our jobs. That kind of persecution starts with concern and then it turns to, I don't want to be around you, and then it actually turns into hatred. And it's a natural thing. It happens all the time and it's happened since the first century. Since God said these words through Jesus Christ, when Jesus spoke these words, 
that kind of thing started happening to Jesus. He was killed on a cross. It is the natural order of the Christian walk. So weigh that consequence in if you choose God. And I think when God says you should consider all these things, that's part of it. So know first, Christ did all of these things for us. Um, And these are our three defenses for persecution. Um, It says, great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not only does God reward you for what you're doing, your reward in heaven. So if you're getting persecuted, you're getting rewards. It is God's will for us to do it, not ours. We've already given up our will. And we're not alone. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. They've done this to other people. Now they're doing it to you. No difference. So those things, I think, Satan relies on us feeling isolated. He relies on us feeling like we're all alone. He relies on us not recognizing the rewards of heaven. And when you're alone and you feel like you're losing everything and everything's destroyed, Satan has got you right where he wants you in the face of persecution. You're helpless. So the end goal of our lives is not to die a miserable death, and not all Christians do, but some of them do. And when that happens, there's this amazing peace and grace that most of them have. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with his holy angels. When God returns, we want to be with him. We can't be ashamed of him ever. And look at how Martin Luther is like, so help me God. He made sure they knew this was about God. It wasn't about their rules. Praise God, most Christians don't die nasty, ugly deaths. Um, But we have lots to get through before that's going to happen to us. And there's a lot of growth that has to happen. Um, Paul admitted, (laughs) this is neat, the very first thing is we inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, you inherit the kingdom. You got the whole kingdom right here. If we consider and weigh all this out, we make this decision and willingness to be persecuted back when we're poor of spirit. I got nothing, Lord. It's all yours. I'll take whatever you got for me. Paul says this, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already on the point of being sacrificed. The time of departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now the, praise, the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness. He's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He's about to get it. He's exceedingly glad. I'm about to be done with this world, and I'm happy about that. Polycarp of Smyrna, first century, right before he's martyred. Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed child, Jesus Christ. He makes sure they know it's about Jesus. I bless you that you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour that I might be able to share in the number of martyrs. We're not alone. Drink to the cup of your Christ that I may see, that I may rise and live forever. God's done it before us. Body and soul in the incorruptible of the Holy Spirit, may I be admitted with those martyrs to your presence to this day as a welcomed and acceptable sacrifice. You've made my life a preparation for this. He knew this when he started. And you let me see that this was to happen and now you've brought it to pass for you're a true and faithful God. It's God's will, not ours. He's got all three defenses in that one statement. When we met the Chinese people, one of the things that blew me away about it is when someone in China becomes a Christian, they recognize they could be hauled off to prison and killed. They weigh the cost before they become a Christian. And they're a stronger church than we are. But we can still weigh the cost too and become a stronger body of believers if we know that's where it's going. Genesius of Rome, 
There's but this is what he said before he was martyred. There's but one thing that I know. It is he that I love and worship. If I were to be killed a thousand times for my loyalty to him, I would still be his servant. Christ is on my lips. Christ is in my heart. And no amount of suffering will take him from me. First century, second century, third century, there's nothing new about martyrdom. It's part of the game. Not for everybody, but for some. I don't think Jesus leaves us on persecution and revilement. He leaves us on this. In addition to the 10 blessed statements, if you separate out 10, 11, and 12, he, he gives two statements that you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and he ends on those things. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. You are salt, you are light. It's part of the same linguistic thing, and if you add them all up, it adds to 12. This is a way to govern your life. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing and thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. There's that word cannot, cannot again. You know, Pliny, the world recognizes it, the Christians recognize it. I can't do anything else. So these are our statements, 13 and 14, already done, natural byproduct. Uh, you don't do salt and you don't do light. You are salt and you are light. You are those things because you have been meek, you've been poor of spirit, you've been mourning. You've been doing these things as a natural progression. And the end result of those is that, man, when you are living for Christ, you are these things. And God wants his servants to be that way because when they are, they become salt and light. And this is the end goal of our Christian walk. We should also weigh this in when we count the cost. Um, salt is precious in the Roman world. It's Roman soldiers used to get paid not with coin, but sometimes with salt. And they were worth their salt when they were paid. And we still use that phrase today. Someone's worth their salt. Um, it comes from salt being so valuable, it was its own form of currency. It preserves, we know that about it. It keeps a, a small sprinkling of salt on a piece of meat, keeps the meat from rotting. This world is rotting. <laughs> and a small sprinkling of believers, of Jesus followers, is what God's going to use to prolong the rotting so as many people as possible can come into the kingdom. Salt adds flavor in controlled amounts. Overbearing salt is unedible. <laughs> and small amounts of salt become a good taste to other people. In fact, we should be a blessing to the people around us. Not overbearing, but a blessing. Um, the world's a little more precious when there's Christians in it. I used to think of all the things Christians have done, hospitals, schools. The idea that everyone should know how to read was a Christian idea. Uh, the, the ending of slavery largely came out of the church. Uh, basic human rights and women's rights essentially started in the church, and that's not necessarily extreme feminism, but basic human rights for both genders was a church thought. When the earth benefits from Christians, that's a good thing. It says you're the salt of the earth. I wonder if Christians like these ragged people in Galilee sitting listening to Jesus heard you the salt of the earth. That wasn't the, you're the salt of Galilee or Jerusalem or Judea or Israel. It was you're the salt of the earth. And maybe they thought that's a big deal, but Jesus is seeing the picture of what the church is going to become. It says if the salt loses its flavor, that for, for a few things. First, it means it's possible for Christians to lose their saltiness. And so if it is possible, that's really sad, but we have diminishing worth to the world when it happens. In fact, Jesus says we're good for nothing. 
If you're not at the point where you're ready to be persecuted, you're not there. If you're not willing to leave your father and mother behind, he doesn't even want you in the kingdom. Like if you're not willing to go all in, the lukewarm thing's not welcome. And Matthew's going to make that point about the kingdom over and over and over again. If salt isn't salty, it's good for nothing because it's not useful because it doesn't preserve the meat. It doesn't save anything. So when that happens, it's not good. It says trampled underfoot. That comes from the use of old salt. If you put it out in your, in your sidewalks and on the Roman roads, it would actually kill the soil. So it's even worse. Not only are you good for nothing, the only thing you're good for is killing life around you. Legalists, emotionalists, the way in which Satan will corrupt people in the church to cause division, right? You're not only you're not good for any saving of lives or preserving of human fleshy meat, but you're also killing the, the sprouts that may pop up. Literally the, the nazars, all right? The sprouts can't grow when there's salt there. It's good if you want a road without plants in it, it's bad when you want to grow something. So light as a second image that he has. Light has physical properties. It, is a, it has to have a source and it has to be received. Light to our human eye cannot be seen between the source of the light and the receiver of the light. But in between those two things, in physics, you can put a reflector in. So you can have a source of light that hits a reflector that doesn't receive it. It just bounces it off to another place where it is received. Everything else is spiritual maybe, but there's this idea that God is the source of our light. Jesus is the source of our light. Uh, um, Jesus says that, John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall doesn't walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Um, we show Jesus to other people by being reflectors of Jesus' emanated light. And that's the, you know, again, that's not me. That's just, the way John 1 8, he was not that light, talking about John the Baptist, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. He is, John the Baptist was there to reflect the light of Jesus so other people could see Jesus. Our job isn't to receive light, it's to reflect it to other people for as long as we exist. Light can't exist without a source, and that source has to be eternal for us to do it. So we don't live for ourselves, we're meeked, we're poor of spirit, we're mourning people. Uh, and those things don't go away. But we can reflect the light of God to other people and in that redeem the breath that God's given us. Um, Pharisees took this title for themselves, saying they were a light to all. Uh, Jesus uses that familiar phrase and gives it to the common fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. So that would have ticked off the Pharisees. Him saying that you are the light of the world, not the Pharisees. He's taking the title they gave to themselves these prideful rabbis, and he's giving it to everybody. Anybody who follows me, you're a light. So light makes things more clear. It's not our job to make things confusing or difficult or tedious to get into the kingdom. Steph and I have gone to churches where if you don't dress a certain way or talk a certain way, you're not welcome. And that's not our job as believers. Our job should make the path clear and to make sure that as a reflector, we're not mucking the light up with our own flaws. If there's no light in the world, everybody's blind. We can't assume the world knows anything if we don't shine. Um, light also, last, no, second to last attribute, light's powerful. And light can actually, when condensed, can cut things, right? And when we use the word of God to reflect Jesus' light, it can become a two-edged sword. Darkness does not exist. It's the absence of light. But light actually does exist. 
It's not empty, it's physical. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.14, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Uh, light shows people the Word of God, and we do it by helping them see it and understand it. It's a city set on a hill. The point of a city set on the hill, they're actually close by a city that would fit this description, but it doesn't reference that. Uh, but the idea is you can see a city on a hill from miles and miles away. If we set up the teaching of the Word, we build a church, we do it, there's people that can see it. Um, and when a light is set up, it's not meant to hide. Even under revilement and persecution, we don't hide. We say it. Luther tacked the 95 Thesis on the door of the church. Like he put it up as a proclamation and announcement. Here's what I see in the, in the Bible. So the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, the glory of the, all be, the, the, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full grace and full truth, we preach Jesus. Nor do they put, verse 15, nor do they put a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. Gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men that we may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Acts 26, 18. Open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that he may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance of those who are sacrificed in them. We love to hear, blessed are the poor of spirit, because they shall inherit the earth. But so many Christians, that's all they want. If we don't get to the end of this little sermon of Jesus's, the point is to be a light to the world. That's what we're matured for. And that's the end goal. And if we don't get to that point to shine the good works to all of humankind, knowing the cost of possible persecution, we never get to see that lampstand. The lampstand implies that there's an intentionality to this. People can see what we're doing. We read the word, we fellowship, we food, we pray. Right? And people can see that that's what these little Christians are doing. Right? And I think of the, the Midianites looking down with Balaam at the Israelites having their feasts the town of Jericho watching as Israel feasted and did Passover right in front of them. Like they can see what we're doing and they know what we're doing and we're out in public so people can see it. Uh, Romans 2.19, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. They see your works and glorify. We don't do works because we want to be saved because we're poor in spirit. We know we don't do any works that mean anything, but we do works. And the effect of those works is not to be better in the face of God because we inherited it at step one. The point of the works is to shine God's light and reflect his glory to other people in powerful ways. So to wrap up, <laughs> I think this is a good test of the people of God is who directs us. Like if we're just reflecting light, we don't have a lot of work to do. We see what God's doing. We share it and do it because God's shown us to do it. <laughs> I'm going to scooch. So when we go into a church, and I think, I think this is a good test, you ask who directs the people of the church? Who's is in charge here? Is it the pastor that's in charge, or are these people honestly looking to God before they do anything? So it's a good litmus test for a pastor. Say, what's your growth plan? And see how the pastor answers that question. In a fallen church, he'll tell you a human growth plan. In a godly church, you'll say, we're here to serve the Lord and reflect, like we're just living our lives as believers and serving the king. We reflect his light. That's what we're doing. God opens the door, we go through it, and we don't hesitate. God closes the door, we, it's his, he's going to do with us whatever he wants. 
And that's how a pastor should respond to that. There's no posturing because there's purity of heart. There's no attempt to please because there's a humility of spirit, right? So when somebody says, like, I was just thinking through a lot of these things. When somebody says, oh, that's a really good work that you did. Um, and they say, thank you for so, we should be saying, don't thank us, thank God. Like, I'm just a servant to him. Anything good you saw is coming from him. When somebody reviles us, and how dare you do that? Our response should be, I can't do any other. I'm a servant of God. I just reflect his light. I cannot do anything else. You don't understand. When we're persecuted and somebody says, you should do it the way we want you to, we should just say, we're already bowing before an almighty God. We can't do anything else. You don't understand. We love what we're getting in the kingdom. We're to be poor in spirit, mourning, meeking, hungry, thirsty, pure, merciful, peacemakers, persecuted, reviled, exceedingly glad, salty, and we're supposed to be lightning rods for the planet. Like at the end of the day, we're supposed to reflect light. That's the ultimate thing. Twelve attributes, twelve ways of being, one way to govern our lives. There's only one decision. We count the cost. We weigh it all out. The blessings of God outweigh the temporary affections of this world, period. We start with poor in spirit. God makes us rich. This is the way Jesus blasts this out into the world at the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very first teaching. This is it. This is the plan. Everything else in Matthew basically is commentary on this. Which is, we've done a lot of commentary today. I could have just kept reading, I suppose. But Matthew's just going to come back to each of these elements and walk you through them and show what they look like and, and outline it and talk about it. So Matthew 5, the first part, you'll see tons of stories and narratives that illustrate each of these things as you go through the rest of chapter 5, which we will next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, Jesus, like every other moral code, is a shadow of what Jesus just laid out in these verses. And Lord, everything else falls short of it. It's complete fulfillment of your law in the Old Testament. It's exactly what the judges weren't able to do and the kings failed to do and the prophets couldn't warn people against. It's perfect. And your law is good and we love it. Uh, Lord, help us to seek righteousness, Lord, not in others but in ourselves. Help us, Lord, to have mercy for those that aren't at the same place we are. Help us to trust that you are uh, are, are the one that changes hearts because we're all poor of spirit. We have nothing. Lord, help us to mourn our lost life and our sin and our regrets, but not live in it, uh, not to have Satan get put shame on us. Lord, every one of these elements, Satan wants to turn it against us and point us back to the world and get our eyes off of you. But Lord, we just got to look up. There might be snakes, but we got to look up and we got to keep our eyes on you. And the snakes might even bite and persecute. But Lord, we want to keep our eyes on you. Nothing gets us off of you. Um, Lord, bless us in those things. Teach us your ways. Uh, because Lord, we bring nothing to the table. We really don't. We are beggars uh, at the king's table. Uh, Lord, we want to serve you and humble ourselves to you. We want to meek ourselves to you, Lord. Take everything we have and it's yours. We need to listen to you and be responsive to you so that we can grow in, in your path change us and mold us, Lord. Make us something different so that we can be pure in heart. And when that happens, Lord, we know we didn't do it ourselves and you did it in us because we know your power in our own life and that we can testify to it. Lord, help us to be, it's hard to be glad when people are coming at you. 
but you got to change our hearts even for that, Lord. We can't even do that on our own. Help us to be exceedingly glad because you've put a joy in our heart that when we suffer, we can choose joy. Uh, we see it clearly for what it is. We see it as a spiritual battle. We see it as spiritual warfare, Lord. We know to come to you for that strength and that power. You're our salvation. You're our strong tower. It's to you that we run. And Lord, we just know that when we do that, that that's something that as, as many people revile us, there will be those people that want the light and they want the salt and they want to be preserved and they want to be shown the way too. And we just need to make it clear to people and help people see it. Lord, bless this day. Bless uh, the Sunday evening Bible study and just be with the, the saints that are there and studying your word. Lord, we give you an offering of praise, an offering of time, and an offering of this worship, Lord, because you are good and you are holy and you are right. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.